Hello, and welcome once again to the Oklahoma Atheist Godcast, the best goddamn podcast in all of Oklahoma County. And by goddamned, I mean damned by God. By Oklahoma County, I mean the... Today on the show, we're going to be talking with Dan Finca, who holds a PhD in philosophy from Fordham University and is an adjunct assistant professor of philosophy at Hofstra and Hunter College. Dan was a devout evangelical Christian until he grappled with the portable Nietzsche while enrolled at one of America's most conservative Christian undergraduate institutions. He went on to write his dissertation on Nietzsche. I would not hesitate to call him a Nietzscheophile. That that sounds worse than it is. So, Dan, welcome to the show. Uh, I'd like to start off with the least important but most pressing question. What's with the camel? <laughs> um... Uh, so the camel has to deal with uh, an image in Nietzsche where he talks about the three transformations of the spirit. And he describes the first transformation that the spirit should undergo as turning into a camel. And he describes the camel as this uh, creature that takes on great burdens as, as a way to prove its strength. And so it, it's, it's, a, it's a beast of burden. It's an obedient uh, animal that's a servant, um, and and it's and it's in its glory and its strength and its its thrill is in is in uh, challenging itself. So it walks through the muddy waters of truth and you know deals with um, all this adversity. And even at the moment of victory, it you know abandons the cause rather than become triumphant. You know, a triumphant uh, you know triumphalism uh, succumbs to triumphalism, and so. So you have this image of the camel as concerned with challenge and growth, and and not so much with um, you know with with victory. It's 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 more concerned with ascetic values of of, of being a, a dutiful and obedient and strong in 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 taking on burden. And so it's the first of the three transformations. And I see I see the camel as um, as as a metaphor for Nietzsche's ideal of of the kind of spirit which is truthful and in a self-denying way, like willing to deal with harsh truths, willing to prove oneself, willing to, uh, willing to take on that kind of, you know, ascetic commitment to what's right and what's true and what's, you know, uh, and, and taking one's strength in that. And I think that's sort of a, a kind of spirituality that, that, that religions have fostered, uh, you know, the, the Western religions that Nietzsche is criticizing. And so that's sort of the beginning point of the transformation is you start with that sort of ascetic religious dutifulness. And then there's this need for the camel to kind of realize that morality itself is, you know, the, the absolute morality uh, that, 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 that inspires all this, you know, uh, bravery and courage and, and dutifulness, that, that the morality that motivates this obedient animal is actually a fraud. It's it's based on lies and and deceptions of uh, supernatural beings and and thou shalt, which which are not really true. And so then the lion has to turn in uh, the camel has to turn into a lion because only the lion can say no to the dragon of thou shalt. All these all these uh, pr- th- these ideas that 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 ethics comes from outside of us. Yeah. So so the lion is uh, the stage of saying no because the camel's an obedient animal. And so, so the camel really, you know, doesn't uh, stand up for itself. Doesn't do that. It's more concerned about its tests of asceticism. Uh, so, so, so the camel has to become the lion to reject the false, 
values and the false notion that values come from the thou shalt of some supreme authority outside of us. And then after that, uh, the, but the camel, the lion is just a no saying animal. And so the final transformation has to be the child where you're no longer just saying no, uh, where you're no longer defining yourself by what you're rejecting, but you're, uh, the child creates freely. The child is innocent. The child is, is new games and new ideas. And, and so the child represents the genuine freedom from the old religion. And so the camel represents to me the, the, the stage of aesthetic, sort of truthful dutifulness, commitment to challenging oneself. That was my religious spirituality that led me out of the faith. My, my religiosity was of a kind that led me to uh, see, uh, to become so honest and so truthful and so dutiful, to, so, so concerned with being moral that I realized, oh, my faith itself is a lie and immoral I, and, 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 and to be willing to reject it. And so the, the camel's where it starts in that way for me. And so, and, and there's a certain respect in which you never stop being the camel. Uh, and so, so I, so I loved that image. And then, then there's the lion stage where, you know, if you want to see that, go, go read Feringula. And, uh, <laughs> oh, here we go. Child <laughs> stage is trying to move past the anger and the reaction to, uh, religion, uh, and, and start to do something that's constructive in a post-religious context where you're not defined by what you're not anymore but you're creating something new and constructive. And so the child is where I also want to be. And that's the image of the hammer to me. The hammer has three, three uh, dimensions to it. Nietzsche titles uh, the work, the twilight of the idols. Um, he, he titles it how one philosophizes with a hammer. And I like to think of camels with hammers about being how one blogs with a hammer. <laughs> and <laughs> there's three notions. Uh, so, so what Nietzsche means by the hammer specifically is a tuning fork that tests the idols and sees what kind of resonance they have. The old idols, are, are they hollow? Do they have a good ring to them? So it's a matter of testing the received values. It's not just a matter of smashing them. Uh, it's a matter of seeing what's in them. Is there anything there? And I like to have that reflective approach to uh, analyzing religion and moral con religious and moral concepts to see what, what are they really worth, these idols we've received. And then, then there's also smashing the idols, of course. That's what I think hopefully comes to many people's minds. Uh, that, that's what I hear. And then the, the final notion, though, I do think of the hammer as a building instrument. So I think of it as a matter of, you know, constructive, something for the child stage of post-religiousness. Wow. Your children must be nothing like mine. <laughs> I don't have kids. I, I have, my children are more like the, in the lion stage, constantly saying no. <laughs> I'm pretty sure they don't see the, the hammer as at all constructive, but I, I could I could be wrong about that. I, I appreciate that explanation. It is it is um I'm gonna have to make up some incredibly bizarre stuff to go with my blog title now, because I, I feel like totally inadequate. Like well, why is it background? You know, it's, oh that's really it, it's nothing. It's nothing like a complex journey through the soul of the transformation. <laughs> um. Hawkwist has an open thread right now asking what philosophy means to lay people. And what to you, what about philosophy do you think should be important to the general public? Well, I think that um, I think that the questions that people presently turn to religion for are really the ones that are uh, the pressing philosophical issues, right? Um, I, I mean, philosophers have relevance to 
do some conceptual work that can help cognitive scientists, something like that. That stuff happens. Right. Uh, there have been certain scientific uh, discoveries that um, that have that have been aided by philosophers doing a little bit of conceptual work on the side, but we're not really primary players there. You know, uh, sometimes philosophers of science have helped. Uh, you know, obviously Karl Popper's notion of falsification crystallized an idea that's been very influential among lay people and si- lay scientists, uh, you know, lay philosophers, scientists. Uh, you know, and uh, Thomas Kuhn also has done a lot there. But but where I where I'm most urgent is that is that there's a lot about what it means to know, how to hold beliefs proportional to evidence. Like how do we even define the word knowledge? I think there's a lot of good stuff in epistemology, you know, the, the study of belief and knowledge that I really wish the average person knew because they just throw around this idea, well, nobody knows anything. And, and there's, it's a lot more sophisticated than that if you, if you look at it with, with contemporary epistemology. Or, but to me, the most important thing, and also, well, I'd also say that metaphysics has a lot to offer people. I mean, I think that there's a lot more speculation that we can do within the bounds of reason. And I feel like so many people are stifled by having to believe that the only options for metaphysical speculation are super god humans, you know, that yeah. of natural uh, ancient origin, you know, supernatural beings of these ancient myths, that that's our only option. And the only other option is just a, a basically a nihilistic kind of materialism and that there's no other room for speculation. And I think that that's just wrong when I read interesting metaphysicians thinking about the idea of what if more possible worlds are actualized or what if this world is eternal and actually uh, always existing and we don't, you know, we don't like, like what, what if, what if this, what if our lives are eternally happening rather than, you know, just vanishing when they're done? Like what if, what if this moment is always existing in some way, then is that a kind of immortality? Maybe we can affirm even as atheists without having to posit anything supernatural. (laughs) Right. That's, that seems kind of freeing to me because whenever I whenever I'm uh, reading anything with, about metaphysics, I'm mostly thinking in, from a negative viewpoint. Yeah, and I could just be thinking in a counter positive in a, in a different way. Exactly, and I'm not saying that there's good evidence, you know. <laughs> but I'm right. saying that good arguments, you know, they're as good as the argument that the moment passes away. I mean, I've checked with physicists or. And they've, you know, they're they're torn. They don't know if the moment's gone or if it recurs. I mean, like, or if it's, I mean, not recurs, but is eternally happening, every present moment. Uh, you know, that's that's a way we can look at things. You know, and it's physically possible. It's physically possible that there's multiple worlds. Uh, in multiple, um, all possible worlds exist. It's physically possible. Nothing rules it out. Multiverse theory might allow it. And so now, is multiverse theory true? No, but I mean, I mean, not no, but I mean, we don't know, right? But the point is that there's a lot of room to think. There's a lot of room to speculate. There's a lot of room to have more hopeful thoughts that aren't rooted in just anthropomorphism and superstition mm-hmm. and thinking. Like there's ways we can at least you know dream a bit, and I think that that's good. I think that's a healthy thing. And and most importantly, most importantly to me is values. I mean, I think that values are a rational issue, and there's a lot of objectivity in moral thinking. That people, uh, we, you know, we, uh, our culture just falls into these relativistic platitudes, and I find it very troubling. I think that there's a lot we can do constructively about moral reasoning by reading philosophers instead of just deferring to holy texts. And so I think that there's just a tremendous amount of insight there, 
And, you know, look, there's a tremendous amount of insight just from phenomenologists. I mean, if you look at the way that all the language of othering others and objectifying people and subject, and this is all language that's rooted, as far as I understand, in a lot of philosophy and a lot of interesting philosophy about about the phenomenology of how people interact with one another. And th- these are issues that go just that go beyond just the kind of stuff you get from data. You know, they, they go beyond the stuff that you can get in a scientific mode. Philosophy can have some dimension of, of being sort of a rigorous way of reasoning without when there's no data, you know, uh, like reasoning carefully about our concepts and keeping ourselves logical and coherent and insightful when we don't have the, you know, the hard data and when we're speculating to make our speculation as good as possible. Since so much politics, so much social discussion, so much values discussion, it doesn't have data. We have to be really rigorous about that stuff. And I think good philosophy helps us do that. I'm sure you've noticed there's a bit of an anti-philosophical undercurrent in much of the new atheism. Uh, sometimes it becomes overt uh, when people uh, sort of make this argument that you know if you can't do it scientifically, it's not really worth doing. If it's not something that in, involves an empirical process or the hypothetical deductive method, it's just not getting at truth. And you seem to be taking a very different approach to you know, how to reason about these these problems that science can't even f- frame yet. Yeah, I say we should even reason about them because I don't see what the I don't see what the point of stopping thinking is in the meantime. You know. I don't see what the point of just because we can't have the best answer yet, or maybe some issues don't have a scientific answer. They have a conceptual answer, you know, and they have to kind of understand that. Uh, So I think in the meantime, wherever there's still uncertainty and ambiguity, the human mind is going to want to question freely. And I think that the danger is that religious kind of faith based thinking says, oh, I know, let's just posit dogmatically and insist and impose. And so that's that's terrible. You know, but but I think but I think that to to the other extreme of saying, until there's data, thou shalt not speak of this, you know? <laughs> it's, it's antithetical to brainstorming. It's uh you know, it's antithetical to dreaming. It's antithetical to thinking of, you know, through literature. You know, the human brain has a lot more t- Tools than just empiricism. Empiricism's amazing, incredible tool. Uh, but 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 you know, it there's room for other tools. The only thing we we have to have is a philosophical temperament that's willing to admit we don't know. We're speculating. We're being you know philosophical. You know that's okay uh, as long as we don't confuse our philosophy for hard science. It's okay to be philosophical as long as we don't impose it as dogmas. But always have arguments. Always, always be open to new arguments, and I think I think it's a wonderful thing. You said about being open to new arguments, and uh, and you just mentioned values a little bit ago, and so naturally, uh, I would like to ask about you, you have this this thing you've been doing, trying to get people to have arguments with one another in a certain way. Uh, it's been a major uh, project of yours, which I, th- I feel like it culminated last week when you, you put together this epic civility pledge with all these different links in it, back to your earlier uh, fleshing out of these issues. Could you tell us a little bit about what you're trying to do there and what the reaction has been? Um, well, you know, what I'm trying to do there is, I mean, I, I got into the atheist movement uh, because, well, I mean, I started a blog 
because I was going to inform the world that there was no God. And I Good. found out people were on the case already. So that was taken. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so, you know, like, so, I, but it was good. Like it was a very cleansing thing for me to kind of get out all the reasons I had for disbelieving. And it was great to kind of radicalize for a moment and because connecting with other atheists and it was wonderful to be in that sandbox of other atheists and atheists started reading me. And that was fantastic because I was now connected to atheists in a way I hadn't been. I was, you know, I, de I deconverted at a religious school and then I went to a Jesuit school for philosophy. So, you know, for, for, for grad school uh, to study philosophy. So I was never in that primarily atheist zone before. So it was wonderful. Uh, but once I worked out a lot of what I always wanted to say to kind of clarify the arguments against so many sophistries in favor of religious beliefs, you know, what, what I was realizing was um, that, you know, like I, I wanted to ask more critical questions about religion. And so what wound up happening was I wanted to ask, well, are, are we really being sensitive enough about what it is? What is valuable there? How do we retain what's valuable? And that started it. And I, and I just started to think about being fair because I was thinking about, you know, this all really started in one way. I guess it was already starting, but this started with um, one of the things that catal you know, really catalyzed it for me um, was that um, was I was thinking about the way that the way that we we don't like when people say that they hate homosexuality, but they love homosexuals. And I right. thought, well, you know, are we going to do that the same thing to the religious people? Are we going to say <laughs> religion that makes up most of your life, you know, in, in many people's cases? And I was wondering, well, how can we become not hateful people and <laughs> really take a strong stand against what we think is harmful and wrong about what they believe? And that, and that led to a lot of reflection. It led to, led to me really thinking, you know, we need to be really scrupulous that – that, that we really start separating our hatred of a falsehood or a hateful hatred of a harm from 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 blaming people as though they're these demons from the pit of hell, you know, uh, because then we would become like the fundamentalists, you know, we would have their same sort of good evil dualism that they're, you know, uh, sinners and saints. And that was really what was, you know, that was driving this for me. And and so and and so so as this went on, I guess. I guess I started to realize then, well, then, then, then I, uh, this was just something I was doing and, and I would, so I would, I would, I would kind of poke at atheists to think about religion more nuanced ways, kind of, kind of not lump everybody together and also to think about how we, ways we could become constructive relationally to them. And then, and then what wound up happening was I laid out my moderation policy last summer and it was just because some trolls had really shut down a blogger I'd had who was trying to open-endedly look at Wicca and find parallels between naturalistic religions and what atheists want to do. And I thought it was a really sensitive and open-minded kind of exploration of how we could, you know, how we could really glean good practices from religious people without committing the, the sins of authoritarianism and dogma. Yeah. And mm -hmm. really project, and yet trolls on my blog were just basically saying thou shalt not speak to him you know they were just they were just derailing every comments thread people who wanted to say something positive couldn't even get like they were just too they they were they didn't want to they didn't want to go in there it was a viper pit when you say trolls you know the yeah. classic meaning is somebody who's being disingenuous who's in there just to stir up shit to say things that are provocative that they don't even believe I'm guessing that's not what you mean here. You mean mean-spirited people or I dog pilers or what do you – I don't know what word we'd use if you want to use a different word. Uh, basically people who are were enforcers against unpopular opinion. So these were yeah. – this was 
the Inquisition of New Atheism. You know. Okay. Yeah. I've right. seen I've seen this a lot. It's, it's this is the, the dog pile mentality, the call out culture. Yeah. Yeah. And and more than that, it was just that like every single thread was like. Uh, my my guest poster's name is Eric Steinhardt. Steinhardt never answered this point from my other from the other thread, and I'm gonna mm-hmm. sit here and demand he go, he talk about this topic, you know. Mm-hmm. And I was like, and and they would they would call him crazy, and they would just they were just they were just trying to be so belligerent and to kind of force him off the internet, and 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 it. And I was such a free speech absolutist that I was like, okay, I mean, what am I going to do? I'm not going to silence them. You know, I would argue with them, but that would be about it. And then, and then I really got to thinking when then there was a like in the summer uh, I posted about somebody, and like, I posted someone who, who who had a really good faith argument about against an uh, against an atheist, and he was a very educated person, very thoughtful. He had a very good debate with another atheist. And, um, and what wound up happening was, uh, he got savaged in my comment section, just name called and just like, he, like he was a monster, you know, and he wrote me, and it was like, you know, I wanted to chime in on, on what you posted and what other commenters were saying, but the way you, you know, way your comments thread is, it's just, uh, it's just so I'm not going to get in there. Uh-huh. I was like, what kind of a blog am I going to, what kind of a blog am I doing here? You know, like. If I'm going to if I want to have these serious important debates about important issues and yet people who really want to have a substantive debate are going to look at my comments thread and see a bunch of, you know, blood on the walls and and just want to leave. Uh-huh. So I put up a comments a policy. You know, and I said, look, and it's an ethical matter. It's a matter of if we're rationalists. This became the thing to me is the Hitchens thing that really Hitchens got across to me was that uh, was that what made faith so bad was it was authoritarian. It said, believe this, not for reasons, but based on authority. And that that's linked to authoritarian politics, because that's do what we say, not for reasons. And it, that inspired the Kantian in me, the, the, the person who says, look, the only reason to accept something is if it's appealed to your mind and your, and your reason. You know, if someone's trying to coerce your will and force you to believe by emotional pressure when they don't have an argument, uh, then 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 they're trying to coerce your mind. They're basically it's a, it's, it's a crime against your intellectual conscience. It's immoral. And to me, if we're rationalists, what are we fighting for? We're fighting for the right of everyone to make up their own minds without emotional coercion and irrational pressures, and you know, people to allowed to think for themselves. And so to me, it was an ethical matter that we not abuse people, that we not push them around as part of an argument. Because And and so to me, the very point of the atheist movement was not that religion is false. That wasn't the point, Um, because religion could still be good in some ways. Uh, You know, and, 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 and you know, the falsehood, well, there's a lot of false things. What the point of, to me, of the atheist movement was, was that religiousness or faith-based thinking and, and faith-based tactics of, 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 of winning people over were, were subversive to reason and subversive to the conscience. And so if atheists were going to also resort to abusiveness in order to persuade people, then what they were doing was they were subverting the conscience too. They weren't rationalists. They might be activists towards other wonderful aims, and uh, and I think that I think that many of the abusive people in the movement are sincerely motivated by something that they think is good, 
and I and I don't begrudge them that, and I agree with many of them about what they're after. Uh, but but the point to me is the atheist movement's not about, at least to me, I'm not in it, just to force convince uh, force people to agree with me. I'm in this as an educational movement to teach people how to think for themselves out of the confidence that if they think for themselves, you know, with 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 the best information and the best values arguments that they will agree with me. But I but I can't compromise the principle that I have to reason with them uh, in a way that appeals to their own conscience and their own reason so that so that their conversions to my side are legitimate and not the kind that I set out to oppose. As a philosopher of, of ethics, you were you were destined to take this on because you <laughs> wanted to help people, you know, sharpen their wit at all times and not rely on these crutches to win to win arguments instead of actually coming to some kind of uh, well. Truth. Ethics is implicated. Epistemology is implicated here. Yeah. I mean, if if you're not helping people along, if if you're just trying to herd them but with psychic pain with insults. Then you're not helping. You're not being moral yourself, and you're not helping them do good epistemology. Right. <laughs> you're making them a different kind of sheep. Exactly. Yeah. yeah it's um, which which has been endlessly. It's been endlessly frustrating to me. I've, I've had very similar experiences um, on all sides. Uh, although actually, I've had I've had less of this with dealing with with religious people. I've had less negative experiences when arguing with religious people. Than I have than with arguing uh, within the free thought community. I, I don't know why that is. It could be that I spend less time arguing with religious people these days, or it could be that the religious people that I argue with were, were people that I knew in real life, and that changed the dynamic. Well, phrase. I think it comes from Freud or somebody, but I'm not sure who. It's called the narcissism of small differences. Yeah. Narcissism of small differences is is that when people are a lot alike, very very small ideological differences become blown up into huge controversy. Um, and I guess it's because maybe it's – I don't know. I'm not a psychologist, but my speculation is it has something to do with you know, we want we want to be able to carve out a unique identity. So even though we join a group, then within that group, how do we define ourselves as not just one of the group? Well, it's my little thing that separates me. You know, like, I'm, not, I'm not one of you, this you know, <laughs> midge over. You know? And so that's why – that might be part of why very small disagreements – you know, can rock communities that you would think, you know, that they have so much more in common with each other. And then they're, you know, it's like, it was like hilarious. Like PZ Myers once posted a link where Ken Ham was berating other creationists over some issue. Like, like he hated, he hated like the, the, the 10,000 year old earth creationists. They were like the worst, <laughs> like a, like a 6,000 year or something. I don't remember exactly who it was. Yeah. And like, was like, look, the creationists are eating each other. Yay! <laughs> I wonder what that would be like. <laughs> we so, don't have that problem. <laughs> yeah, we don't have any sort of infighting. What um, what has been the general run of react? What kind of reactions have you been getting from your efforts to say, look, here's so here's a very detailed guide for being civil. What have your the reactions been like for you? Uh, they've really gone across the map, right? Um, you know, some some people have enthusiastically endorsed it. Um. Very, you know, people. Uh, George Way at Misplaced Grace was part of this, uh, writing it. So he was very. So he endorsed it. Bridget Gaudet at Free Thoughtify. Um, 
Uh, I was very thankful to you, Damien, for posting it. Uh, Secular Outpost posted it. You know, there have been others. Steve New uh, Newman at, uh, uh, posted a, a, you know, a supportive thing on uh, Massimo, uh, Massimo's uh, Rationally Speaking blog. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so there's been a lot of positive. Um, then there's been there've been a, I mean, there's been a lot of people who've been saying, "Look, I agree with the idea of civility, but you know, um, but I don't want to sign a pledge, you know." And I, you know, whatever, I'm fine with that. I'm not, yeah. uh, you know, like even like even as I put up this big pledge, it starts out with a with a, with a whole thing about, "Look, if you want to add your amendments, please please feel free." So I wasn't trying to impose anything. The only reason. I did get into such detail was well, there were a couple of reasons. One was I wanted it to be something of solidarity where if people could, you know, agree to it as a basic thing, then they could know like, okay, this is another blog that's agreed to it. And maybe you could get several blogs that have signaled that so that there could be something of a community among them. That was kind of the idea. It was a solidarity kind of a thing among people who, who really feel like personal feuds are distracting from the serious issues, not trying to evade the serious issues. Like, this is one of the things that I really wanted to stress in writing it. And I'll get back to the reaction, some of the negative in a moment. But one of the things I wanted to stress is I'm not trying to stifle free speech here. Uh, so the whole beginning of it is about free speech. And it's about, look, to have the best free speech, you have to have the environment which is conducive to people really speaking their minds. Right. Mm -hmm. Has to be an environment where people will not get killed for being unpopular, for having unpopular ideas, and that means we have to be restrained about punching them. And it also means, and this is a huge part of it, and and I and I and I wish I wish my detractors on the left would grasp this. You know, the detractors on the right missed that whole free speech point. And they're just looking at, you want to censor the words, slut, oh my god, you're a horrible... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's been happening a lot. Like, if you, if you can't make an argument without using a slur or an insult, that has nothing to do with the substance of any philosophical point you want to make. Those words are only there to make an environment hostile to somebody else. So I don't I see where you make your point. I wonder if people are confusing, like, they, they want to use slurs in general, but you you mean it in an argument. Yeah, I mean it in the context of we, we've put a difficult, tense issue on the table, right? Now what are yeah. we going to do? Now, now I, I have to ask, like, I, this is an argument I got into with people at, at my own blog network. I'm like, well, I'm pretty sure that Dan's not saying we can never use those words, uh, like if if somebody is you know she's wearing a bikini and she just got done marching and she says man that slut walk was bitching nobody's gonna be like hey you used two words that upset me right, right like right you know like you're group slurring yourself stop that exactly like there's a context for reclaiming right like 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 if 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 a black person wants to use the n word who am I you know I don't care yeah uh, so right there's ways to reclaim the words I mean I mean in any context outside of reclamation by a woman I would I would be angry at the word slut because I hate that word I I think it's sex negative I think it right. I think so unfair to women that you're you're actually bashing them over wanting sex it just drives me crazy as a heterosexual man who wants to have sex with women who wants <laughs> I don't want women I want to have sex with to feel like they're going to be restrained in their willingness to have sex and their desire, their, their, their pleasure. It's just, it's just so unfair. It's so, 
that's the word because it's never it has. But look, if yeah, if they want to do slut walk and reclaim the word, I'm not, I don't care. That's so, great. Yeah, it's, so it's slurs as slurs, not not ju- it's not just the words themselves in every possible context in every yeah. possible way. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so right, these words as slurs, and again, it's because of like in like like I said, like I was very careful in the thing to say, look, you know, it doesn't matter if among your friends. You know, like like my ex girlfriend, her best friend is black, and she's and she told me that when they talk, they 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 they're they're racially inappropriate all the time, you know. But does my ex girlfriend doesn't make racial jokes to me, her you know her, her you know her white boyfriend at the time because right. that would be racist, you know. Yeah. But mm-hmm. you and your friends of another ethnic group have a have a joke where because you're friends, you can joke about the racial tensions between us. That's a wonderful thing. But that doesn't mean you come into a public forum and say, well, I call my friend this racial slur so I can call you that. I mean, come on. That's just totally uncalled for. Or That's- people in England say cunt and twat all the time. So why can't I tell you that whenever I'm making a, an argument yeah. against you? Like me, me and my uh, millions of British friends, we use these words all the time as a term of friendly abuse. Between exactly. other British people. So totally it's okay in any Anglophone forum anywhere on the internet, right? Because that follows. Because it's right, it doesn't. <laughs> we invented the English language. We get to do with it as we please. <laughs> and so my idea is, look, I was I was saying to them, you know what? If in England you want to use that word and it, everyone feels that way, whatever. But you're not on the internet. And so you have to – why not just let the word go? Like why cling to it? Why fight over it? Why force people who are threatened by the word to have to deal with it? You know, like you're talking to someone from a different culture. Don't go. I mean, this is like, you know, what are you going to do? Are, are you going to go to Japan and, and like and piss on their customs because you're from England and you don't do things like that in England? The Brits have been known to piss on people's customs. I mean, that's you know, just a, that's a thing about historically. Being British. Yeah. Historically. I mean, look, a matter of if you recognize that, look, there are uh, there's a subset of people who are very offended by the word bitch or by the word slut or by the word cunt. If you know that this word is upsetting these people and you and you don't care about that, you would you know, then you're not interested in reasoning with them. You're interested mm-hmm. at some point that no one can ever take a word away from you. To me, anyone who's interested in the truth and 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 and, con- and constructively working with other people should that should be their last concern. I want to be able to keep those words for whenever I need them, but Frankly, I don't need them when I'm trying to have a serious discussion about the sorts of things that we like to try to work through as a free thought community. Uh, any sort of any sort of arguments that we're having, whether it's w- within the community or whether it's questions about uh, dealing with theism or creationism or whatever, um, I, I can't. I just don't have the need to <laughs> to use really dirty language to make my point about the ontological argument or whatever we're talking about today. You know. Yeah, it just it doesn't. It it's not. In the, uh, there's a big toolbox out there in the English language, you know. You don't need it, and it doesn't help you if you're actually trying to win an argument or not. I hate I hate saying win an argument, but at least when you're trying to make a constructive, have a constructive discussion, it doesn't help you at all. It hurts. Well, yeah. I, I, the most common objection I've seen to your pledge, Dan, is that like we can't put down these weapons. They're they're what we use to chase privileged people out of our spaces. Have you seen that? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So that's the biggest criticism. And, you know, what what discourages me about that um, is that 
I did learn a lot like last summer. I mean, it was a very, very valuable experience for me to get there, you know, a lot of pushback, um, you know, and I really appreciated it. You know, I wrote a whole post in which I laid out all these objections I was getting. I mean, it was tough, of course, you know, no one likes to be raked over the coals and especially by <laughs> like if you're on the left, the people to your left, it hurts when they attack you, you know, yeah. you know, if, if people on the right attack you, well, that's the other tribe, you know, right. Uh, so I feel, of course, a lot of pressure to answer, and and especially because, especially because the people who are complaining, you know, are uh, minorities and, and and gay people and transgender people and women who, you know, who I I, I don't uh, you know I don't want to be counterproductive to their cause. I mean, I care, and so so it was very upsetting, um, and and it was good because I learned a lot. I really learned about okay, really thinking through. All the subtle ways, and I'd already known some of this, of course. I'm not, I wasn't clueless, um, but but really thinking about, okay, look, you can't have, and I'd already written about this in the beginning of July, you know, in a piece I wish everyone would read, called uh, what the what 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 um, what the best free thought and uh, speech require, uh, something with that title. Uh, I should know it, but um, and in that post, I had said, look, in order to have the best kind of free speech, you cannot have a totally neutral environment. You do need to have one in which everybody's opened up to feel free to talk. Mm-hmm. And, and that means specifically that there are certain ways that members of marginalized groups have to be accommodated. Like you can't let subtle digs and goading happen. You know, you can't let people phrase certain arguments in ways that – um, that that implicitly push marginalized groups out of the discussion, and I think that's what they're most worried about is is that it's very easy for people to make a a civilly a civil sounding case that has implicit dehumanization of the other person, right? And and that's what they're worried about is that that can get that can get by, and then that could goad a marginalized person. And then that marginalized person screams at them because they're angry. And then the rules are, oh, that marginalized person has to be scolded. And now you've just kind of reinforced this, right? And and the other concern with this is, you know, so but this is why the pledge tries to say, I believe in a pernicious neutrality, a you know, pernicious sense of neutrality that 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 that, that thinks that they're, you know. Um, there's a, there's a number of these sorts of protections in there where I'm where I'm saying I go out of my way and anyone who signs this is committing to go out of their way to look for the signals of a hostile environment, look for ways that people are being goaded, you know, looking for this and and in that sort of a spirit, saying that that yeah we can talk about the ethics of homosexuality and we 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 can we can we can we can talk to people who doubt that homosexuality is good and try and persuade them or we could talk about people who question transgendered people's gender identification but we have to make sure that the way that they're doing it always shows respect for the 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 gays and the transgendered people who are in the room you know who are reading and so there's a way to be respectful about saying I just don't understand this or, or or I'm skeptical because of this conceptual issue or I'm worried about this ethical issue. There's a way to do that without without, you know, subtle digs that are civilly worded but harmful. And I and, and that's what a kind of conscientiousness I was calling for. The problem is the problem is this. And this is actually a, a, is that is that the word civility is 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 apparently uh, a really damaged word because 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 in the past you know um, 
marginalized groups, members of marginalized groups speaking out, were called uncivil just for being so as impolite as to challenge, right? Or for getting mm. angry being goaded. And that's upsetting, you know? Um, it's upsetting when Michelle Obama says that, you know, the reception of Barack Obama, her husband, was the first time she really felt proud as an American. You know, anybody who took that and twisted this into she's an angry black woman, I mean, how upsetting was that? I was furious about that, you know? <laughs> that was you know, very frustrating. Yeah, because, you know, because you have to realize, I mean, here's a woman who's saying, look, I've dealt with prejudice my whole life, and this was me realizing, this was me seeing America live up to welcoming me. And instead of taking that as a positive, it was tarring her as an angry woman forever having doubted America. That's upsetting. That's angering. And I understand where that kind of standard of civility, where she's not allowed to say that America ever did anything wrong without being the angry black woman, that's upsetting. And that's, 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 just, that's just one drop in an ocean of that shit. But it has nothing to do with what you – know, you were very careful about what you were trying to do. You yeah, weren't, you weren't like you weren't leaving any, as far as I could tell, leaving any space for that kind of. Uh, well, you're not being civil because you're challenging my views, or you're not being civil because, you know, that that sort of faux civility. I, I don't see a place for it in in what you're trying, the project you're trying to further. Right, and that's exactly it. Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna cut it off right there for this time, uh, because Alan McFarland taught me that students and listeners can only focus for 45 minutes at a time, tops. We will return tomorrow with the exciting conclusion to the Dan Finca interview. Have a great night. The Oklahoma Atheist Godcast is produced by the Oklahoma Atheists. The mission of the Oklahoma Atheists is to develop a community of individuals and families who value and promote critical thinking, free thought, reason, and a scientific worldview, and who seek to have a positive effect on the community at large through fellowship, rational discussion, community service, and education. For more information, please visit our website at www.oklahomaatheist.com.